everyone. Today's March 10th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, ETSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Dieter Jaeger, who is the Winship Distinguished Associate Professor at Emory University. He uses computer simulations and electrophysiological approaches to solve biological questions related to the basal ganglia and cerebellum. Hi, Dieter. Hello. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, um, Welcome back, Salma. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we've uh, had a sort of a round robin of, of uh, hosts this, this semester. I'm sure everyone's enjoying that. Um, Dieter, I want to start with something, a bunch of vague questions that, you know, you're free to take in any, any direction you want. But I, I was just thinking about this in terms of as, as we move from single neuron dynamics toward large network properties of the brain, um, are the transitions between the levels of, of abstraction obvious within a modeling framework? So, um you know, can we move easily between Hodgkin-Huxley and, and, you know, linear filters, rate filters, and, and how how aware must the modeler be of coding strategies at the population level when building single-neuron biophysical um, models? Well, these are uh, seemingly simple questions, but actually very complicated questions. Uh, so I, I think awareness is always a good thing, um, and one can use different modeling levels for different questions. Uh, so the important thing is to uh, first have a relatively well-defined question and know what one actually wants to answer with one's uh, modeling approach. And then one should go and see what the most fitting and best uh, possible uh, approach in the modeling world would be for that question. And depending on what level the question is, it could be all the way down to uh, diff- diffusional modeling and single-channel stochastic behavior, um, Thumbs up, Fidel. <laughs> that could be Fidel. Uh, and and, and sets a, for certain plasticity rules and understanding uh, biomodality of, of molecular states, that would be the right way to model. If you wanted to understand a whole brain region, uh, you, you wouldn't find enough computer power and it would uh, be drowned out in complexity. So you try to simplify probably as the questions are higher scale questions. I'm actually still personally grappling with the question exactly what the right level is for uh, for network modeling. Um, so, so there are uh, different, especially at the level of so at the level of single neurons, we are relatively well defined, and, and we have found a niche with compartmental modeling to have a reasonably good electrical equivalent at least to single neurons. I think we gain understanding that's relatively solid on that level. When it comes to networks. Um, Few of us, there are some approaches that would actually say, well, just keep those models. Let's take our 3,000 compartment model and make a network out of it. And if we have enough uh, machines, uh, now I guess I won't name names, but if you have enough machines, you can make uh, several million of those neurons and make a network model. You will have uh, data that are very difficult to interpret afterwards because there are so high dimensional data that come out of that. Um, And you can't analyze all possible permutations of the different parameters of each neuron in that model. So you, you, you have to stick with uh, some uh, some assumptions on the parameters. You could also uh, do what physicists like much better. You can reduce your model to as simple as it possibly could be uh, to still capture some of the essential things you want to study. And then you have a more, uh, more easily uh, viewable uh, space. The question is, does the brain work in that simple a fashion, and could you lose some of the dynamical, interesting principles of how brains actually function when you go too simple? And I, I think the answer on that is still open. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how simple one could be and capture the essential operations of the brain. It's a, it's a very good question. 
Can I say, follow up on that a little bit? Because in this group, we have recently been talking about how aware do we have to be about the implementation layer that lies below the level that we're modeling mm-hmm. at. But you asked, but, how aware do we have to be above about the application layer that, that lies above the level that we're modeling at? And uh, which is a really interesting question that you really didn't address. Uh, so can I restate it? Uh, how much, when we decide what are the features of the neuron that we want to represent in the model, shouldn't we be picking the features that are most relevant yes. for the true life, real function of that neuron? And do we need, what do we need to know about what that neuron's job is and what it, what it's really doing in order to represent the relevant cellular features correctly, to choose the correct cellular features. Well, so then some experimentalists have an easier way of knowing what the relevant features are. If I'm in the auditory system, I know I want to do coincidence detection from right to left ear for horizontal uh, uh, localization. I have a relatively well-defined problem, and I can put in those properties that are likely to be relevant to solving that. Uh, in my case, in the globus pallidus, we have really not the first idea what is getting computed and how. So at that point, it becomes very difficult to know uh, which features you would want to retain and which ones of those are important or not important. Uh, and maybe it's not, and I've sometimes thought that globus pallidus is really a bad way to uh, start a principled understanding of brain function because the inputs are very ill-defined in, in their function and representation of information, as are the outputs. So uh, I, I guess I'm up for challenges, so I'm worked in a very murky area of the brain in that sense. So given that handicap, what's the good news about the globus pallidus? I mean, why would anyone ever choose to study it? I, I, there was a guy on my PhD thesis committee, Mark Dubin, who was a visual system guy at that time, very well known. And he said in my PhD defense that he thought there ought to be a moratorium on studying globus pallidus or any basal ganglia place until after we'd work out a couple of places that we had a chance to figure it out, like the visual system. <laughs> and then the, the, the principles that were discovered there could be applied into the, in these murkier areas. What, what do you say to Mark? Well, I'd say the motorium would last for a very long time because <laughs> the visual system is under active study for a very long time and, and the principles are yet to be clear uh, in the sense that we find maybe more than enough principles. and different People find different principles at different levels and we still have no agreement on what is essential in the actual biological function. Is it, uh, it goes all the way to uh, individual dendritic spines uh, and, and single dendritic trees to uh, bigger network properties being relevant, or the interneurons inter- are very popular topics these days. Uh, in addition, uh, and just as a little aside, I certainly, uh, and, and uh, this is a little plug for the globus pallidus, among other things, is that inhibition is often not uh, treated as equal opportunity partner in our, in our classic studies of cortical function because interneurons are, after all, only 5%, and that's, I mean, statistically, that's almost insignificant. So we, we tend to forget about inhibition being an important aspect of, of neural processing beyond just keeping excitation at bay so we avoid epilepsy. Uh, inhibition actually in itself can carry a functional signals, and there's very few clear examples of that in the brain. One of them, and I've seen to study most of those, so the Purkinje cell projection in the, in, the, in the cerebellum is purely GABA-A inhibitory output to the deep cerebellar nuclei. It carries all the essential information that, of computation that's going on in the cerebellar cortex, which people believe is significant and important and actually very finely timed. 
uh, in the Globus Pilatus, we are not as sure about the importance of fine-tuned timing of action potentials, but uh, certainly the output is purely inhibitory, um, and, and we understand that inhibitory projections uh, have a huge impact on processing. Um, so, so we can give inhibition a special view and a special emphasis on, on participating in, in brain processing, which uh, actually the cortex people slowly also are looking much more at inhibition as being a primary uh, drive in, in information transfer. And maybe they actually looked at some of the papers from the cerebellum or the basal ganglia to uh, get the idea that inhibition could be a primary driver. I'm, I'm not sure they did. But, but you'll never know. They could have. They would never tell us. No. <laughs> they would never admit, right? <laughs> so I want to go back to the, the, so these questions that you said, oh, well, what you need to do is start with your question and then go find out how to answer it. And it seems like some of these issues... Uh, uh, relate to finding a question. You don't find a question in a vacuum, right? So you don't uh, ask questions where there's no feasibility in any way of any experimental test. Well, so is, uh, doesn't, that, doesn't that correlate to the abstraction of the model? I mean, it, real, realistic models tend to solve really specific or you know, a, a very well-defined range of phenomena, right? Whereas poorly defined problems maybe are more applied to but, abstract. I, I mean, sorry, we, we, I think um, <clears throat> something that bugs me, right, in terms of these uh, electrophysiological models in which we're trying to fit a series of weights, in this case, the, uh, the conductance, right, to a specific set of spiking patterns, have shown these extensive modeling techniques like Astrid Prince and uh, Eric the Shooters is that the um, uh, hyperparameter space that we get that matches a specific behavior seems discontinuous and, and like uh, Gruyere cheese. I think that's how Eric uh, has described it, right? I mean, in his PLOS computational biology paper. And the same result comes out of Astrid Prince's work. And I and one, I mean, my intuition will say, and I'm, I'm just trying to stay away from creating a model based on the question, or just go all the way from quantum mechanics to evolution. Okay, is it possible that we're getting these results because the the uh, we are saying we're saying, oh, I, my question only is related to this level of detail, so my model is going to just be done. And then at the end, the parameters, the parameter space ends up being discontinuous. You cannot define, you, you, don't, you don't have a well-defined volume that describes a specific spiking behavior, bursting or continuous spike trains. And that, that uh, maybe that's the way it is, but it is worrying that we cannot define that. In, in these massive studies, that's. But if that's the way it comes out, that's it, the way it comes well, out. maybe it comes out because it is oversimplified, and we are driving the system to. It is a projection from a way a larger uh, parameter space, uh -huh. and that's why it will look discontinuous. I that, see. That, that's that makes. That's, uh -huh, that, that, that's what I'm. I, 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 uh, in, in that sense, I will uh, say that maybe we need more modeling, even if our, if our question is at uh, one spatial temporal scale, maybe what these results are telling us is that um, we are projecting it um, 
uh, we, we cannot find a well-defined structure because we're not using other levels of... So you would argue for using even more parameters, even more dimensions. It's a hypothesis, let's uh, say, yeah. But yeah, we'll argue it on a more and personal how, basis. Uh, and the, this is an interesting idea to me, though, because the idea is that... And I should point out, Fidel is a physicist. So uh, reality <laughs> uh, ought to be nicely behaved. And things that are like each other should live near each other in the true yeah. parameter space of the world. Mm -hmm. And when we don't see that, it's because we are uh, we are looking at a foreshortened view of the world because of some dimensional reduction thing. This, this just sounds familiar to me as a kind of thing that physicists always Yeah, do. I mean, although that's how we also like it in biology, right? We like our somatotopic and tonotopic maps, and when it is discontinuous... Like fractured, we send it to the cerebellum. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that you have to. The, my reaction to that is you have to look at your constraints. So look, what are you trying to match? So in general, if you have some big high dimensional nonlinear thing, you have more parameters. In some ways, you don't expect these these isolated things. If you have some nonlinear surface, then you have a, f a lower dimensional constraint. You're, you're trying to satisfy four or five properties. And if that's lower dimension than the number of parameters, then that's kind of what you expect if these things are fairly yeah. uh, uh, generic kinds of properties, that they're not really tuned to the level of the model. There's a mismatch. And then they're kind of slicing across each other. So you're just lopping off parts of your parameter space. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get. And so you can either think about, well, what should we do with the parameter space of the model? Or what should we do with the, the constraints that we're trying to satisfy? Uh, what we really want to do, of course, is understand the relationship uh, between them in a way that's now informed by the fact of what you just did, right? Because you set off your constraint. We want to match these things because they happen to be things that we picked out as being important, the spike width or the whether it's bursting or not, and things that we just know. We have a tool bag of things. We, we just say that. Mm. And then the parameter search really isn't based on those kind of higher-level functional properties. It's just everything, right? So are we matching? Do we have the right level of description of the constraints that we're trying to match or not? I mean... Well, ultimately, we never match uh, a model to all constraints. That uh, so, there's always more uh, experimental constraints that one could add to uh, the to the model construction and the characterization. And that those often is good to leave them alone. Some of them because uh, you like your model when it generalizes to new conditions that you haven't yet tested. And that is actually the ultimate confidence builder in a model is that uh, you make it good for things that you have measured, and that's really curve-fitting, and one gets sometimes accused of just curve-fitting. But then that should only uh, do the job it's designed to do. If it actually then can do a job that generalizes to new experimental conditions and say uh, you haven't you have just tested the basic performance of a neuron in slices, you made a model that matched that, but then you uh, throw new conditions at that slice recording, um, and the model then will either match those or not match those. Uh, and if it doesn't match those, then you lose a little confidence in, in your model. Um, and maybe a smaller adjustment will make it work again and generalize to the new condition, or, or it won't. Um, and if it does match it, then you're really confident that your model captured something important because it, it suddenly predicted and was compatible with new findings that it hadn't even built into it. And that's what ultimately makes the model high quality is um, 
if it generalizes to, to new uh, conditions. And then, of course, if it can do that, it can also predict new outcomes before they're even tested. And the predictive model would be the best of all models. So I have to say that we often fail in that realm. And that just teaches us how complex those neurons really are. Um, so we have actual examples of uh, the kinds of models that you do, which are... I mean, they are not super-simplified models. I, I guess they might be, depending on your perspective, but from my perspective, they seem like really elaborate and realistic models. And then you try to predict something with them. Do you have examples of the prediction failing miserably? Uh, well, we have some predictions that are untestable at this point. That's also dissatisfying. We have predictions that actually worked relatively well. That was mostly in the uh, cerebellar work that we did. Um, we have not actually gone to test too many specific predictions from our Glowis Paladis model yet, um, partly because we've been working on dendritic spiking and we just even don't know how to record it. Um, so we're struggling a little bit with how one would even know whether there are such things in uh, in vivo, for instance. Uh, and, and some so of the other predictions uh, could be done. So I, I'm looking forward to transgenic mice that could, for instance, target dendritic channels specifically and or would change the uh, transport mechanisms or the expression cha of channels in specific parts of the neuron and I think genetically and just sort of on a mechanistic level we might be starting to understand regulation of channel expression in this different parts of the cell if you could manipulate it we would have predictions that would be testable and I think that would be a very exciting future for this kind of work uh, but so far uh, we, we don't have transgenes that sort of express the same in the soma but not in the dendrites there's no particular reason to be pessimistic about the predictive value of your model, except just on general principles that we should always be pessimistic. I would certainly take each model as a working hypothesis and not yet as a replica, and I don't even think it needs to be or should be a replica of the, of the, of the real thing, because of one, at one point it cuts away all the detail that's more detailed than what we model, and some of that cutaway detail actually has causal influences on model behavior or the, or the real system behavior which is absent in the model and at another level we are still uh, hugely um, simplifying as well as, as probably wrong about we're probably missing uh, certain mechanisms entirely um, and when it comes to say bursting so our models are built for a certain time scale and they often go bad on, on really slow time scales because there are drifts in, in parameters uh, that we don't build into the model um, there's also, say, with big bursts, if we pharmacologically induce big bursting behavior, those are very hard to replicate in our models, uh, partly because I think then uh, things as such as sodium-potassium exchange pumps uh, start being important in, in terminating, for instance, a huge activity burst, uh, and, and we don't even put a changing driving forces of sodium-potassium. We, we have constant concentrations in our models, no pumps. Um, and for some of this extreme behavior, that would become limiting. Um, so it's, it's, it's a question of what you put in and, and whether you could expect fairly that that would be part of what the model could uh, could work with. I think synaptic integration is a fair fair question, and my major question is what does that type of neuron do with the kind of synaptic inputs that we expect in vivo? And in some sense, I do network models with a single neuron in the sense that we uh, just uh, try to create artificial input patterns from... Uh, stochastic extrapolations of individual measurements in vivo 
and we say, well, we, our best guess of what this neuron would see in vivo is, is some sort of correlation between inputs with this statistical structure, uh, and then we put them in the model, and then we see what uh, the model does with that kind of in vivo-like input. So we sort of have a fake network model going in the sense that we create artificial inputs that are from a, a network that doesn't exist but is based on statistical mm -hmm. assumptions about all the different input trains. It's an open-loop network, right? Yeah, it's basically an open-loop network where, uh, where the rest of the network isn't influenced by the output from my one cell. Uh, but we can see how that cell extracts uh, and, and participates, for instance, in an oscillatory activity. And, I mean, just a little plug on oscillations, which are, are a very hugely popular field in, in neuroscience these days. Uh, and gamma oscillations uh, in cognition and, and cortical function, beta oscillations as uh, partly pathological in Parkinson's disease, uh, theta gamma oscillations in hippocampus. And it sounds like we think that the brain codes with oscillatory processes, and that might be the central function of of the brain, but I think it's more correct to say that oscillations are something that we can handle at this point. Uh, it's a process that we can measure, that we can assess the amplitude and the presence, and we can look at the component processes that cause or dampen oscillations. And we currently, our level of theoretical analysis of networks is currently maybe good enough to understand oscillations and not really true high-dimensional phenomena. So we limit ourselves and work a lot on oscillations, not because the brain is intrinsically primarily working with oscillations to compute, but because it is one state of networks that we can sort of get a handle on at this point. We, we should be really uh, very modest in terms of how far we are from fully understanding the high-dimensional well, I would call that processing. pessimistic. It's also possible that the brain does use oscillations to compute. Wouldn't uh, that be wonderful? Well, uses because we're making a lot of progress with that. Well, it seems that it does use oscillations in some instances, and, and we have found some very interesting functions of oscillations. Uh, so I'm not saying it's not using them. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's, it's a relatively simple type of dynamics to be used computationally. And the brain is, I think, an equal opportunity uh, exploiter of any possible mechanism because it, whatever basic evolution could come up with that would help us do things, it will co-opt, and it doesn't have to use one strategy cleanly. It just uses every bag of the tricks that it could use uh, and for instance, spike time-dependent plasticity, uh, and, and sort of these are now big ideas that are in the literature of rehearsal of, of, uh, of synaptic activity patterns in sleep and, and using uh, oscillations to time spikes just right so that spike time-dependent plasticity can operate on that basically replay during sleep. Um, that's a hugely important function of, of timing spikes so that they would become part of a meaningful pattern. Uh, and I actually find that one of the more elegant, interesting ideas uh, out there, and almost uh, enough evidence to be quite believable. Um, unfortunately, in the globus pallidus, coming back to my own brain area here, um, no idea whether it participates in dreaming at this point, for instance. Wouldn't know. <laughs> So you've been well, working on... Well, the dream out. If you knew that, you might actually have an idea about function. <laughs> so, so your group has been working on building um, these queryable relational databases uh, that take large neuronal data sets right. and you know, the, the, use them for model optimization. Could you talk a little bit about that strategy and um, maybe speculate about how much integration across scales and disciplines is going to be possible using that kind of approach if that even is going in that direction. I mean, right. I'm imagining like a, you know, a Watson basically type 
platform to answer questions about the brain? I mean, is that, is that something that could ultimately... That this what's is on the computer, no what's on the computer? Uh, yeah, Watson, uh-huh. the platform, the IBM. Sorry, uh-huh. okay. sorry. Well, so the, the, the two distinct, uh, uh, so the kind of databases we are currently analyzing are what we call brute force databases. Uh, um, they are not a structured representation of knowledge. They are basically just uh, a looking at every which parameter combination, uh, putting it in sort of a hypercube of information, and then that mining just that information. Uh, so you have to then search your database uh, for a specific. Uh, possible models that would fulfill one or the other criterion. You can, like we've talked about, you can see whether the solution space is continuous in parameters or not. And because you have every combination, you can actually look at the continuity of solutions through this uh, parameter space, as opposed to another type of optimization, say evolutionary algorithms, where you have, uh, you meander through parameter space, but you don't fill in uh, the grid, so you wouldn't know what would happening off the track of things that uh, the parameter search uh, visited. So they're complementary techniques. Uh, they're all very general in the sense that you could use it in any uh, experimental approach. Uh, you could make uh, brute force databases and, and mine them, be it neural development, be it molecular uh, pathway modeling, be it uh, electrical modeling of neurons or networks. You can always build either, you can either use optimization techniques uh, or you can build brute force databases. Uh, they both have benefits and limitations. I think the other topic that is is also very interesting where Watson comes in is uh, is a bigger question this is uh, is the question of the scientific community putting out scientific results uh, at the billions of bits per per per, uh, per month uh, and no single uh, scientist brain can integrate and, and process any longer all the publications that may be relevant to your own uh, your own area of research because it could be quite diverse I could have uh, impactful results from a different brain area because they understand the principle of function that could be relevant in my brain area. Uh, it could come from invertebrate research. It could even come from physics uh, in terms of systems analysis. So there's a huge amount of possible correlations of research in different areas that could be fruitful for my understanding. I cannot read that literature uh, entirely. It's just not even remotely physically possible. So my dream of Watson in our um, area would be uh, Amazon or, or Google doing it for me and basically using the entire internet as database, including all our research uh, data, all the way down to raw data if we can manage to get them on the internet in an interpretable way, and, and have these artificial crawlers or agents uh, go through there and we can ask them a natural question uh, and they go out there and, and dig up the information that could be relevant to us. And, if they were really smart, they would come up with good information. If they were not so smart, they would drown us with meaningless results. Um, so I like a really good Watson help me do my data mining. Wolfram Alpha is trying to do that, right? Wolfram is sort of trying to do something it's like trying that. trying to do it. I'm yeah. sure Google is trying to do that. Um, it's just a very hard question to solve. But it seems like one of the things that you could that you could potentially do, I don't know if anybody's trying to do that, suppose that you just, because there are things that, you know, look for other documents that are similar based on some language, something or other. Whether you just take a, a draft of a paper or a grant proposal and you put it in and then it just comes back with a list of things that would be similar. Uh, that seems less, that seems easier than to ask a structured question because uh, you're just matching various frequencies. It would, be, it would be dirtier, but it would seem to be doable now with technology and you'd run across different parts of your literature 
that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily, and it would give you a, a, a something that you know some semi-sorted list of of things to look through. Like Pandora Music Radio. Yeah, and I give it a paper I like, and then it starts to play a series of papers that it thinks are similar, yeah. and I discover a band that I, I mean, a lab that I never whose work I like, but I never knew that. I think it's more like Netflix. I think Pandora's kind of curated. Netflix has actually an algorithm. Pandora is it's an algorithm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know too much about it. Uh-huh. They call it the Musical Genome Project and everything. Okay. But anyway, uh, uh, I think the idea is a good one. That there's a way of of recognizing, automatically recognizing the connections between people's work that we don't necessarily see those connections, but they could be uh, mined out of the literature and pointed. Instead, we rely on each other. I read your paper and I say, oh, you probably should have read this thing by so-and-so. And And it's it's very haphazard. It doesn't really work. I would agree. It's just that similarity is is a difficult um, concept. Just at what level is it similar? If it uses the word inhibition 50 times, that may help me or it may just be an arbitrary match. It can't be any harder than music. Well, my like of music, I, I don't know how they classify music. Um, maybe there are some simple, elegant ways to just go with loudness and, and variance in, in the pattern and melody. I mean, how, how tonal is it? And maybe your tastes are actually quite simple in that sense. Yeah, that's what they do. I resent that. <laughs> you resent that. <laughs> Can I go back to the question of the database, how you create databases of uh, models? It seems to me these these brute force approaches, right? Although they they map the the parameter space, um, it is it is uh, exponential problem, right? Right. Uh, why is it that I mean, I, and I'm not in the, at that level of modeling. Uh, why is it that we don't have more of? Uh, a hybrid approach of a Monte Carlo and then a, 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 a grid approach. I mean, that's 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 probably more common in other fields, uh, in which you sample the space, you calculate your your gradients, and then you say, well, where the gradient is um, higher, that's where I'm going to do my little uh, systematic search. And uh, in principle, that reduces uh, search times, right? Um, uh, rather than Start with from zero 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 one zero 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 one zero and so on. Right? Well, we actually didn't start from zero in our parameters. So we actually give it in the databases. We we never include zero for uh, most of the values. We 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 try and find already a predefined what we call physiological range. So we do put prior information into the range of the database that might be uh, useful to us. Um, I agree that that could lead us as just a seed for uh, more sophisticated analyses around certain uh, parts of that data space that come out as interesting. And those could be uh, any kind of analysis later on. Um, Continuity of solutions would be one uh, question. Um, Just an optimization, how close is in the grid? Are we to optimal? How quickly would things change? So we could do a a constrained uh, optimization around a specific set of solutions in the brute force database. So I absolutely agree that these can be combined and, and should be combined, uh, and they're not mutually exclusive in any way or fashion. Mm-hmm. But, some, some of the yeah. problem seems to be that we don't, I mean, to my mind is that we don't have, 
the intermediate the intermediate measurements of the parameters. We're taking parameters that we put into the model, not any kind of function. Yeah, you make parameters. a grid. Yeah, so, but you don't make a grid of some functional kinds of things. If you could reorganize and take a, some nonlinear transformation of that, that, you know, if you would, I don't know, you would, you would, uh, optimize how much you start on some level of how much you know uh, regenerative currents at some time scale you have and that and you and you parameterize your parameters in some functional kind of way then your space might be a lot more organized and so then some hierarchical search could be much more efficient in the sense that now we're all surprised that it's all so discontinuous and then if it's so discontinuous then you then some kind of localized search is um, you have to be very local, yeah, otherwise be, you don't know. Because I mean, the whole point was that you're surprised on how non-local everything is. It's just popcorn all everywhere. Well, right. I, I mean, if you don't have a continuity, yeah, it's not that bad. It's not, it's <laughs> right. It's not really Gruyere. It's not really. I think Gruyere. Can you still look kind of a Gruyere? <laughs> can you I mean, explain that Gruyere? Because that went right over my head. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't. Was a type of cheese with a lot of holes in it. Uh Uh, So if you want to map a series of parameters that match, (laughs) if you have a parameter space, and I I, I guess intuitively or a priori you will say, I want to find a volume, a continuous volume, that will represent bursting cells of the kind that I'm studying. And you want to say that if I just move a little bit in that volume, well... You will still be, your neighbors will still be uh, bursting cells, right? And either you have a phase transition, like a a catastrophic change, right? Or you have a a continuous change between clusters of behaviors, right? So going from burst into continuous uh, spiking, right? Or some other behavior. But I think what um, the results have shown from this um, uh, systematic parameter search is they, they have 20 parameters, right? So you have a 20-dimensional space. Instead of having a hypervolume that is like a sphere or an ellipsoid, they have these very convolved uh, parameters that will look as if they were amorphous. Mm. Well, right? So I, I, I don't an, agree with an that. Island. So an island. An let me uh, say that that is a nightmare scenario, but it's not the case in our databases. There are, there are much more closed volumes. They're not spherical, um, and I don't think they need to be spherical. Uh, no, 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 no. But, uh, but there, you, you, you can normalize your parameters yeah. to make them spherical. <laughs> 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 but there are relatively uh, benign, broad areas that uh, actually smoothly do change uh, mm-hmm. performance of the model. Um, there are certain trade-offs, and, and uh, those are also interesting to study, is that there are often some conductance pairs that are sort of negative images of each other, and, uh, and you can upregulate those as a tandem, and then you, you would get almost no change in the output of the cell. It's also true that if you double every single conductance in the model, typically, actually, the behavior is almost the same. Um, so, so it's sort of, if you multiply everything by a given factor, it doesn't have uh, that dramatic an effect. Uh, so there are some, some rules to how this becomes a big parameter space and how there is actually a large range of similar solutions. Uh, and some of it is just that global scaling doesn't change uh, performance too much. And some of it is that there are linear trade-offs, and that actually gives sort of, sort of elongated parts of uh, the parameter space. 
and, and the holes actually Astrid Prince has been looking at those, and she's not yet convinced that there aren't, uh, because of the very coarse grid, that they aren't connected it's along some uh, dimension. Yeah, so that, that is a hypothesis, that they will be connected at a certain, uh, there's a s small mm -hmm. filament connections between what we're calling, what they, they have people call islands, right, these dots, because it is strange, it is just strange to have a blob in that hypercube, in that hypercube that corresponds to bursting, and then nothing, and then, and then another blob that corresponds to, to, to bursting. But there are different burst mechanisms, so, so it wouldn't be... Sure, if you go through Eugene's sure. book, you can see like 10 different kinds of bursting that rely on 10 different uh, ion channel mechanisms. Uh, so uh, if all you're doing is saying burst and you're not distinguishing between very subtle differences between bursts, then you really expect to yeah, see yeah, two yeah. blobs, one representing parabolic bursting and one representing elliptical bursting. Mm. And if you haven't distinguished between those two, then you're you're not going to see it. Okay, maybe, I mean, uh, the point will be to see some kind of functional benefit or f uh, of functionality consequence in saying the burst corresponds to the large blob or to the small blob. That, that will give us insight. It doesn't matter that it is patchy, but if we, there has to be a benefit of doing a hundred or a million simulations other than saying we we have done it and we can create any type of combination, right? If from that um, topology, we can, we can say there are different types of bursts. But I, I, I think that hasn't happened. I mean, I, I don't know all the literature, but I think it hasn't happened. That say, we can say this will be a type A burst and a type B burst, depending on where are, they are in parameters. Well, you're saying that we need to uh, do more databases and analyze mm -hmm. them in a more sophisticated way, and I certainly uh, would agree with the latter statement. That Peter's <laughs> probably be willing to do some more. Someone would uh, give us money for this kind of work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, we would be happy to include more sophisticated analysis of. The, I think it's a it's a very interesting uh, set of questions to. Uh, See, uh, explore that parameter space um, more carefully in terms of because it's almost a, a high dimensional phase plane analysis in some way um, without being a phase plane analysis because that sort of breaks down in the, in the high dimensional space so it's, it's sort of a brute force phase plane analysis uh, and one could conceivably learn quite a lot about the possible behaviors of the cell and their transitions uh, you would probably need to interpret I mean, you could, unfortunately, you need uh, millions of simulations. And yeah, you yeah, need yeah. to still interpret in between solutions to get a better understanding of transition points. So uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, laborious um, uh, kind of program you're lying out there. Um, yeah. it, some of it would probably be uh, quite, quite interesting in some cases, for sure. So I also wanted to ask you your perspective from modeling, from the modeling world. Um, and since we were talking about the theme of biological realism. Um, I'm going to take it out to it way, way, way out there, but how, how good a model system do you think mice represent for the computational framework of the human brain and its disease states? And, and what does that, I mean, how, what defines a good model system? What, what would you, do you have any thoughts okay, on that? Okay, so now we have models, even living beings are models, uh, so uh, not just computer models are models. Um, we go back and forth with calling animals models and calling our 
uh, equations models. Right. And in some sense, it's the same idea, is that something can represent and stand and give us insight about something else. It's a um, scalar question, yeah. And, uh, and the model usually tries to be more accessible uh, and simpler. And, and just like computer models are certainly more accessible than uh, real uh, experimental systems, because we can measure anything and influence anything at our will, that's a real advantage. Mice are certainly more accessible than humans in terms of in, in, invasive studies, uh, also switching genes on and off, and uh, which is the real strength of mouse models these days, uh, and, and, and doing recordings, doing uh, all kinds of histological analysis. So they are ex experimentally accessible. They are relatively inexpensive, and that is a, actually a factor for using, uh, using model systems. It's just how costly they are. Um, And, yeah. and we already know a fair bit about mice, so so and, and rats for that matter. Um, so so it would be very attractive uh, if we could harvest that knowledge uh, and that able to manipulate uh, all kinds of processes and measure all kinds of processes to understand human disease. But then, as a model, it would have to have the same mechanisms as the human. Uh, so I guess that's the question. That's How close are mice? How close are mice? Well, this is a good question, uh, and it may depend on the exact uh, disease and the exact process you want to model. Just like computer models, certain models are good to answer certain questions. Uh, it's not generally true that all, all mice are necessarily good model for every human disease. Um, and it becomes a little strange sometimes when we want to look at cognitive disabilities because mice don't have very specific cognition, process of cognition, certain language Like aphasia, or something. How you? They're terrible for language. Yeah, they're really not such a good model. So it depends on what you want to look at. Uh, but also, very like dexterous finger manipulation, the mice don't really do. So uh, that that could be tactile problems. Could be a little bit of problem with with mice. But for certain things, uh, uh, they seem to to have equivalent disorders uh, that we hope in the brain are fundamentally linked to the same maladaptive processes. And we can actually be uh, quite comfortable in the sense that the brain of the mice really, uh, to maybe neuroscientists all know that, but I think the general population would be surprised just how similar a mouse brain is structurally to a human brain. Uh, that the cell type, if we have a thousand cell types in the human brain that are defined by their channel properties, their dynamics, and their connective matrix, 800 of those thousand will be very, very similar in mice at least. Is that a number you just made up? I just make this up. But, uh, You're on the record. why we're talking on the round table. Um, uh, but I dare you to, to prove me wrong. <laughs> I mean, if, everywhere we look, there are small differences here and there uh, that we can point to, but everywhere we measure, uh, and usually it's primate versus, I mean, we look at, Uh, sometimes we do rhesus macaques or sort of electrophysiology. There's actually now a little bit of electrophysiology in human patients during surgery. But everywhere we look, the properties of these cells are remarkably similar. And the network connections anatomy has seen projections from the same nuclei to the same other nuclei, and even the existence of those nuclei. It's the size of individual functional areas and, and the compartmentalization of cortex, and all those things are obviously different. But the basic plumbing in many ways is very similar. Mm -hmm. And as is the uh, genes, so the, the number of genes we share is tremendous and the proteins. Uh, so when diseases are consequences of protein dysregulation or degeneration or degeneration, the idea that that, that would work similar in mice is, is quite good uh, and, and works. Well, personally, we're struggling with Parkinson's disease models in mice. Uh, 
And that, I think, the whole field is struggling a little bit with just how good the model of Parkinson's disease, various ways of inducing artificial Parkinson's disease in mice is. Mice do not get Parkinson's disease on their own. Uh, so uh, they, they just die without ever having Parkinson's disease. So we have to make them Parkinsonian. We have, uh, at this point, probably about 30 different ways of making them Parkinsonian. And, and the merits of each one of these ways is kind of uh, questionable. Uh, and, and we still struggle with what is a really good model. And, and again, it may be that some of these ways of making a mouse Parkinsonian is good to study one aspect of Parkinson's disease. And, and it's just like computer models. So a model is good to address a certain type of question. If you want to understand the neurodegenerative processes that lead to cell death, maybe you want to put the human uh, mutation in there that causes the same kind of molecular degeneration. Uh, and that would be the best model, but if you want to study motor disorder, maybe you want to just destroy the substantia nigra and look at the outcome of that. So it depends on your questions again. A good model is the one that replicates the causal processes that you want to study in the real thing, the real thing being the human patient here. It seems that that will be calling for very uh, detailed uh, models. Right? I mean, in order to... I mean, I, I think... Uh, well, these are the mice. Base, they're, they're very detailed. By the computer models. models. No, no, we're talking about mice. <laughs> uh -huh, no, 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 but uh, it seems that... Um, I think that's a push from at least uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, and other pharmaceutical companies have been pushing hard to create uh, whole cell models of something, right? The liver or whole human... Uh, metabolic uh, models and that's computer models. Yes, computer models and that's a whole whole human metabolic network models are now very very uh, hot, right? Uh, because you can get a sample of the metabolome uh, and uh, something similar could could uh, be uh, needed um, um, to instead of like looking at the mouse as as the starting point is um, to use the animal model to test the hypothesis that you have come up and test and, and come up with a, a, a stronger hypothesis with your whole brain models. Uh, I'm not saying that we should do it right now, because probably we wouldn't well, that's finish, but it seems that, that, that that's where some, some, at least not neurons are going there, but whole human uh, genome and metabolome and all the omics are going at this point well, the drug faster than also, your biology. Uh, um, the drug industry is usually bad at making drugs that work. Um, and, and I think that neither the metabolomic computer model nor the mice, uh, just like my computer models, sometimes fail at prediction. Uh, the mouse models of Parkinson's disease when it comes to, and even the, uh, the primate models of Parkinson's disease, when it comes to things that work as pharmacological treatments in mice, then turn out not to have the same effect in humans. Well, we want to end on a positive note here about um, animal models. I think we will solve it. <laughs> but, but this is the, this is the, I mean, this, this is the way that works, right? This is no different than at, at some level you come up with some hypothesis and some some system that you do for for some some base of knowledge. You come up with a hypothesis and then you you test it about against things that are uh, increasingly more similar to. The situation that you want to put it in. So you test it in uh, either conceptual models or a stick and thing. Is this a reasonable idea? Or now we have a lot of computer models. You can test, is this a reasonable idea? And then you have to translate it. Well, let's test it in an animal model. And then 
you know, if you go with drugs, then it goes to some clinical stage trial where you test it under certain circumstances and then you see whether it works. And then you move it on up. And at every stage, there's things that don't work and you just try. So a lot of medicine and other stuff is just, well, let's just try. We don't know whether it's going to work or not. And hopefully that as our understanding either of computer models or animal models increases, you get better at making uh, good predictions, good predictions right. right? But you never get away from just trying. Hopefully you get a more of a balance of, of, of doing what Fidel is saying, that consulting some metabolome model and getting a better idea so that you start with better ideas so that you, you are slightly more successful when things move up. But it's no different than it kind of has always been. In basal ganglia, we've always just gone from box and arrow diagrams to clinical trials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just trials. Depends, depends, depends on how many sick people. Surprisingly, uh, some of those uh, ideas have led to uh, therapies that work. Uh, and then after they work, uh, we spent the next 20 years of trying to figure out why they work. And at the end of the day, we sometimes find out that our original inspiration and conceptualization of why they should work is, is not right. Like like this deep cerebellar, uh, deep, deep brain stimulation is from all these uh, cross-correlational studies? Is that what you're saying? Is that, is that true? I don't know. I mean, that uh, deep brain stimulation came from the idea that lesions work uh, and that you wanted lesions that you could uh, revert. So if it didn't work so well, you would have a way to undo the lesion. But you're not kidding. Box and arrow diagrams to clinical trials. Right. That's how we've done Yeah, and that is... Um, and, the, oh, <laughs> and then the deep brain stimulation uh, was supposed to be uh, basically uh, an electrical lesion of that brain area oh, uh, okay. by inhibiting, uh, and the idea was depolarization block or some fashion by which these neurons then wouldn't fire. And you, it turned, turned would you have thought that? Uh, just on the face of it, would you have thought that stimulating real fast in some nucleus would be a good way to make a temporary... No, I thought because I, I don't know the history of this, but, uh, but I'm, according I'm, to, I'm just asking you a naive question. If I have seen a cross-correlogram in which there's a, 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 an oscillation in, in... I don't think Fidel understands it. Like, simple question. You just stimulate a part of the brain real fast and see if that will make a temporary... I'm a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. No. 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 no I, I wouldn't. I no. Wouldn't. I mean, uh -huh. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I mean, I, when I saw these things uh, 15, 20 years ago, I said, "Well, sure, they work." And then they put these people with a with a with an amplifier, and then they will increase it uh, through the years or turn it on and off if they wanted to grab a a cup of of coffee. Right? That was the demonstration. This guy is shaking. You turn it on. You drink your coffee, and then you go back right. to watch the. But it turns out it's not actually inactivating um, that brain area. So, yeah, stimulating, <laughs> just like you would have thought. It actually does stimulate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, it's getting late. Uh -huh. <laughs> Everybody's falling apart. Well, thank you, Dieter. This has been a lot of fun. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Goodbye, Thank you. Thank you.